The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Order. You're listening to the Irish Times Inside Politics Podcast. It's Wednesday, March the 15th, the Ides of March, and you're very welcome to the weekly politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Joining me in studio today, our political editor, Pat Leahy, and in a little while you'll be hearing my conversation with Sinn Féin leader Gerry Adams about the Northern Talks, Brexit negotiations, and why Sinn Féin has called again this week for a poll on Irish unity. But first, Pat, what the hell, if anything, is going on in politics this week? Very little is the answer to that, Hugh. Any political action that there is is taking place not in Dublin. The Northern Talks continue, and I know you'll be talking to Gerry Adams uh, about that. Um, the Taoiseach is in Washington, where he's meeting Donald Trump, and uh, his ministers are spread to the four corners uh, of the globe. So uh, there is no doll sitting, there's no cabinet meeting this week, so it's a quiet week. Absolutely nothing happening. But as we said, uh, talks are progressing in Northern Ireland. I talked earlier to Gerry Adams in Belfast. And first I asked him if he agreed with uh, Minister for Foreign Affairs, Charlie Flanagan, who said that the talks were progressing fairly positively. I'm afraid the line from the governments is entirely misleading. Well, they're talking about great positivity and and so on. Uh, I think it's true to say that the parties all want to see a return to the institutions and Sinn Féin especially uh, want to play a very, very positive role in bringing that about. But the governments all the time uh, do not reflect their own responsibilities for some of the issues which have made the institutions function in a very dysfunctional way. And particularly the British government, uh, the issue of what is referred to as legacy, that is uh, the the search for truth or for justice by the families of those killed from all sides of the conflict, that's actively been impeded by the British government uh, refusal to fulfil their obligations. Uh, so uh, while it is work in progress and we're you know the the, the talks are cordial uh, enough, we we still have a a bit of the road to travel. Well, we know from from previous negotiations over the over the years that it's it, it's a four way process, as you say. There's the there's a, or, or at least a four way process with um, yourselves and the DUP and, and and some of the other parties in Northern Ireland, the British government and the Irish government. Um, Charlie Flanagan said yesterday that that the, he described it as a positive disposition on the part of all parties. What about the issues which brought the executive down just a couple of months ago? Uh, the issues such as the the, the correct approach for a reconstituted executive to take to the RHI inquiry, for example. Has there been any movement on that? Well, the inquiry into the RHI scandal, which is what was the tipping point, uh, which caused the collapse of the institutions, that and the refusal of the DUP to embrace the type of investigation or inquiry that was uh, needed. You know, remember, it was half a billion pounds sterling potentially being wasted without an explanation for why this occurred. 
and also accusations from within the DUP about the DUP that there was uh, corruption or fraudulence involved. There certainly was misgovernance and incompetence. So that does have to be uh, sorted out. And the inquiry uh, will go on and hopefully we'll get to the truth of all of that. I suppose you're referring to whether or not uh, Arlene Foster could be returned to the position of First Minister, you know, before she's vindicated. Uh, I've met Mrs. Foster along with Michelle O'Neill a number of times since the talks commenced. Uh, you know, we have business-like friendly uh, engagements. Uh, this issue doesn't kick in until we have an agreement on forming the executive. We don't have an agreement on forming the executive. But I presume if we did that, that Arlene Foster, who says she's innocent, and I have no reason to doubt that, uh, but it needs to be properly scrutinised uh, and she needs to be vindicated. So our, our position is very, very clear and we've spelt it out on a number of occasions, but it isn't an issue for the talks and it isn't an issue which uh, would become pertinent on, until we have an agreement. I suppose, though, to come back to your to your previous point about the, about the British government, isn't it very difficult, or perhaps more realistically, isn't it going to be impossible to arrive at some kind of a new dispensation agreeable to all sides when we just have to look across the water of the events of the last 48 hours or so. Um, the British political system is in a state of chassis and the minds of the British government, the British parliament are focused firmly on Article 50 and the beginning of the Brexit process and they can't be fully engaged in what's happening in Belfast, are they? Well, they haven't been, and uh, now there has our own government, and th- that even goes back to the government before this one, the Fianna Fáil-led government. There was a sort of a, a notional view that, uh, you know, because we had such a long period of uh, devolved administration led by Martin McGuinness in the first instance, and the NPS, and then Martin and Peter Robinson, and then Martin and Arlene Foster, the, the, the government's resigned from the process and uh, the, 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 the Tories in London and the Gael and their partners have, have no real investment in this process. Now, I, I, I don't suggest for a moment that the Taoiseach doesn't want it to work. Of course he wants it to work and of course he values the peace process. But we, we have urged, and you know, the, my record in, in the Dáil is very, very clear and I've raised these issues with them privately, that the responsibility of the Irish government, and particularly of the Taoiseach, is to keep the British government uh, honest in terms of its obligations, to keep the British government true to its uh, responsibilities. So if a British government isn't going to press ahead with a Bill of Rights or isn't going to make it clear that it's an act negated or a British government which is in clear breach of its obligations on the legacy issues as set out by the Fresh Start uh, Agreement. Why would the unionists move? You know, we, the unionists get a bad press sometimes for not, for not moving. And I can understand why, why they won't move, because they don't, at political level, they don't want any change and they want to minimise and dilute and delay the prospect of change. So the only way we've got them to move in the past, even the most uh, enlightened uh, political leaders there is when they, they had options but if they have no options if they can just sit back and if it's just left to uh, 
you know, the the assembly and if if the narrative from the Fianna Fáil leader rather, rather than being supportive of the Good Friday Agreement, which his party played a key role to bringing about under Bertie O'Hearn, if the narrative it is to be talking about the two problem parties in the north, then that that suits those unionists who who who, who don't want to sustain the growth. But listen, listen, listening to you there, it's it sounds as if it's very likely because we're on a very tight time frame here, aren't we? It sounds as if it's very likely that that uh, that the the process will not be concluded within the three-week time frame. Are you prepared for or even reconciled to a possibility that we might be entering a period of direct rule? Well, well, let me deal with two other issues first. N- number one, these issues can be dealt with within the time frame involved because this is an, impl- an implementation process that we're involved in. We don't need to renegotiate matters that we renegotiated and negotiated time out of number in the past. We simply need time frames and programs to have them implemented. Act Nagelga doesn't need renegotiated out. We gave the executive uh, an Act Nagelga years ago that they've refused to deal with it. So, you know, it's a matter of, of just knuckling down. The second issue, alluding to what you said previously about the British government being uh, pre- preoccupied with Brexit, that, that is entirely right. Brexit uh, is going to have a huge impact uh, in terms of the island of Ireland, in terms of the refusal to accept the vote of the people from the north and and to resign from, you know, the jurisdiction of the European Court, the British Prime Minister's intention to remove Britain from the European Convention of Human Rights, uh, that that will have the effect of destroying the Good Friday ag- Agreement. And that's before you deal with the economic and the other social consequences. And then the issue of, of, of direct rules, there is no reason whatsoever, as I've said, why we can't have uh, agreement in the period that has been set aside. But there's no reason why there could or should be any return to British direct rule because in the St Andrews Agreement, the two governments agreed that if, if there was to be uh, a failure or a deadlock between the political parties in the North, then they would proceed with uh, a British-Irish partnership arrangement. Uh, and they also made it very, very clear that if, as did happen at that time, a first and deputy first minister and an executive was formed, then the British government's power to suspend the assembly would lapse for good. So the British government in, in, at, at that time, in 2006, did away with its power to suspend the assembly for good. Now, of course, it can go back into Westminster and bring in new legislation and restore that, but that would be very, very bad faith and would be a reversal of and the reneging of the joint position is set out in 2000 uh, and, and six. So can you explain to me your, your understanding of what that would entail then, were that to come to pass? Well, Bertie O'Hearn it was at the time and the, uh, the British Prime Minister Tony Blair undertook to begin detailed work on uh, a British-Irish partnership arrangements that would ensure that the Good Friday Agreement which they described as the indispensable framework for relations on and between these islands 
would be actively developed across all its structures and uh, functions. Now, I, I, I have to stress, Hugh, that we're not contemplating failure, but I'm simply pointing out in response to your question about direct rule that uh, the governments did contemplate that, and they were urged by us to contemplate that as well, that, that, that we couldn't have uh, a vacuum but that sounds like that. That sounds like a very broad strokes description of something, and those strokes haven't been filled up in the no, no, in the decades no, since. No, exactly right. And the fact that we did succeed in getting uh, Ian Paisley into power, and that he did so well in that, and for, for the time that he was there, and then that we had ten years. Mark McGuinness being the, the you know the central figure throughout three different administrations uh, has meant that that commitment by the two governments has not been acted upon. But what I'm pointing out now is that if it arises again, and our effort would be to make sure that it doesn't arise again, that the British government cannot uh, simply uh, bring back uh, Jack Drew because the Good Friday Agreement is the framework, it's the arrangement, uh, it is the dispensation by which relationships on this island and between these islands has worked ever since we made that historic except though, except though that 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 as we know from recent events uh, in the in the wake of Brexit, and I'm sure this is uh, this is not something of which is a source of any pleasure to you at all. But the the uh, the sovereignty of the Parliament at Westminster has been asserted in relation to the various constituent parts of the United Kingdom. Yes, and and. You know, I, I again I listened to the narrative from the Fianna Fáil leader and from the Taoiseach on 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 occasions, saying you know the executive should get its act together in terms of sending a clear message on Brexit. That uh, deliberately leaves out the fact that the DUP is for Brexit, and I suppose more importantly that the British government has refused to let uh, the devolved administrations in Scotland and the North any say in its arrangements. It has taken that power back to itself uh, centrally. And you will know that the people of the North voted to remain within the European Union. That should be upheld. You will know that Sinn Féin brought forward a thoughtful proposal uh, for a designated special status of the North within the European Union. And that doesn't impinge on the constitutional issue, but it's the only way there is. There are two ways of stopping a land border. Number one is to have a designated special status uh, for the North within the European Union. In other words, the entire island remains within the European Union. The other alternative is a united Ireland. And I'll come to the United Ireland in a, in a minute because obviously it's, uh, it's, it's, it's always been a subject for, for Sinn Féin for more, more than most parties, but it seems to be in, in the mix a lot more. But before I come to that, can I just ask you, it's very interesting to hear what you had to say there. It, it seems in a way to uh, illustrate what some commentators have said since the election in Northern Ireland, which is that Sinn Féin now have, and not only Sinn Féin, but Sinn Féin now have bigger fish to fry than just the reconstitution of the executive at Stormont. There are bigger issues of sovereignty and relationship between countries at play, and that's more where your focus is. Well, we've always had a big picture vision. Uh, Our best way of dealing with the challenges of Brexit of dealing with the other potential changes that are upcoming is within an executive and within the working institutions of the Good Friday Agreement. Sinn Féin is not resigning from those. Uh, we, we very consciously 
uh, were part of the negotiations which led to that more than others. And, you know, I, I don't mind reminding your listeners or your readers that the plan from the two governments was that the SDLP and the Ulster Unionist Party of that uh, time were seen as being the natural uh, participants and occupants of, of the Assembly and the Executive of that time. Sinn Féin was supposed to drift away off into the snow and uh, they didn't envisage the way our party would develop across the entire island of uh, Ireland. So we have invested heavily in making the institutions deliver for everyone, despite all of the challenges. The, the, the issues which need to be sorted out now have, have been a long time in, in the making. You know, the, 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 the Bill of Rights or the All-Ireland Charter of Rights go right back to the uh, Good Friday Agreement. The legacy issues go back to about that same time. And I, 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 I need to stress the fact that we have an agreement on that and the British government is standing outside that agreement. And even as late as today, I was up in Stormont this afternoon, the British government is still refusing to fund uh, legacy inquests. It's trying to use that as a bargaining block in negotiations in order that in some way Sinn Féin would acquiesce to uh, their their position on the national security uh, clause that they're trying to insert into uh, the the process of dealing with the past. And we're not going to do that. It isn't up to us. We cannot negotiate uh, on behalf of those families and they come from all sides and none. Uh, and they were bereaved or injured by all sides. Uh, the very modest uh, entitlement they have is to an inquest. The British government are actively blocking that. But given all that and accepting that those are legitimate issues to be uh, to, to be pursued, is it, is it wise or is it sensible for yourself and Michelle O'Neill to call, as you did th- this week as well, immediately after Nicola Sturgeon's announcement, uh, to call for for a border poll? Is that is is that the right time? Of course, Sinn Féin are in favour of unification, but well, given everything else you're describing here, is this the right moment to have such a well, poll? Well, we have been calling for a border poll for some time, and uh, you know that that has been dismissed uh, by the, the government in Dublin. Uh, the, 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 w- w- one of the big achievements of the Good Friday uh, Agreement, uh, leaving aside the, the political structures and the rights-based uh, elements of it, which are, are the, the actual infrastructure of the entire, the rock on, on which the agreement rests, but leaving those aside for a moment, it was the fact that we get rid of the Government of Ireland Act. And uh, that was that it was Sinn Féin did that. I mean, I, I went directly to the Taoiseach uh, and to senior advisors, and they wouldn't tackle the British on it. And I went myself to talk to Mr. Blair on the issue, and we, we eventually got him to the point where he decided to set aside uh, the Government of Ireland Act, by which the British had previously claimed absolute unconditional sovereignty in all of Ireland, and then after the treaty and partition the same type of claim on the six counties. They've set that aside. They, but we absolutely accept that that was one of the great achievements and there were a lot of people, yeah, including well, yourself, in, involved in that. And, and aside with that was also the removal of the constitutional claim. In, in, in Yeah, well, the constitutional claim uh, 
was was the gesture from the Irish government that it mattered little to the people in the north who had not benefited from the claim except perhaps in an emotional way. But what it was replaced with was an unconditional obligation by the British government if the people uh, north and south uh, vote for Irish unity, then that the part that that the governments, particularly the government in London, is obliged to legislate for that. And the way of doing that was a border uh, referendum or a referendum on on Irish unity. And, so, and do you so, honestly so do you honestly that. see any prospect of of a of a vote yes for that at the moment? I mean, all polls, market research, research academic research of every sort indicates that such a poll would not succeed. Well, then let's have it and test that. Uh, we were content to have a debate about the underpinning uh, issues. That's why we uh, published our own document on on the issue. We published a series of documents. We actually published uh, a green paper way back in 2006 in, in the Dáil, but we published last summer a discussion document towards a, a united Ireland, and, and that's available for those who are interested at uh, ie. And we, we, we intend to bring forward another document based upon the consultations that we have conducted since we published that. And we're, we're hoping of, we're, 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 we're talking to others in this house about establishing a, a DAL committee on Irish unity to look at how we might get there, what a United Ireland might look like, uh, how, how the Irish state or certainly how the, how the Parliament would uh, plan uh, for that, and we, and we continue to outreach. So, do, do you welcome Michal Martin's in a you know launching of a or a imminent launch of a white paper on on Irish unity? That yes, we think we think all all contributions are to be uh, welcomed. Uh, we we have argued that this issue isn't one for one party. I I would like to see cooperation between ourselves. I've said this in the chamber. I've said it directly to Chuck the. Martin, we would like to see cooperation between ourselves and Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael and Labour and the Greens and the Independents on this, as well as the parties in, in, in the North who support this prop- proposition. This, this isn't about, you know, uh, arm-locking unionism into uh, a, a place they don't want to be. This is about getting agreement. What, 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 about, what, what about, though, Jerry? I mean, I'm looking at a quote here from Martina Anderson, Sinn Féin's MEP in the European Parliament this week. She said, and I quote, no, bar- no border, hard or soft, will be accepted by the people of Ireland. British armoured cars and tanks and guns couldn't do in Ireland, but 27 member states will not be able to do it. Slightly unclear exactly the grammar of that sentence, but the, the sentiment of it is pretty clear. And there's no space in that for any acknowledgement of the validity or respect for the unionist tradition there. Well, but first of all, I think it's true to say, leaving aside the colourful language, that people in Ireland, or at least many of us, have never accepted uh, partition or the division or the, part, or, or the involvement of the British government in, in our affairs. Uh, Martina actually was involved and continues to be involved very much in outreach with uh, unionism and uh, has been one of the people who have, who have actually argued within Sinn Féin for the type of policies which would see a very clear recognition of the 
unionist within uh, a new Ireland, and I, I, I stress that it has to be an agreed Ireland. You know, the unionists are, I think it's somewhere like about 2% of, of the population of the British uh, state, but they would be 20% of, of a new Ireland. They would be able to assert that their full rights and entitlements and to exercise real political power. And you also need to look at the changing demographics in, in the North, where you know the, the Northern state was carved out uh, on the belief that union, unionism would have a secure and permanent uh, two-thirds majority. That, that is disappearing. Their, their assembly majority for the first time since partition disappeared in the, 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 the last uh, election. Is, is that really how you want Irish unity to be achieved by a demogra- winning a demographic No, battle? no, no, I'm simply pointing out. I'm, I'm sim- no, no, not at all, because I, I've actually argued with, with our people that, that well, it might be an interesting occupation. This isn't about outbreeding unionism. This is about making peace with unionism. It's about converting unionism to the reality, as we see it, that we can we can best govern uh, ourselves. Well, I, then isn't it a fair criticism of, our, of all Irish nationalism and Irish republicanism as well, is that one of its most obvious failures is a failure to convert any significant number of people from the Ulster Protestant unionist tradition to this, uh, to nationalism? Well, it's very, it's very difficult to do that when governments in Dublin do not have a strategy for getting the British government to change its position. And there needs to be a two-pronged approach. And I go back to what I said earlier. You know, it isn't the job of the Irish government to be uh, plamassing the people in the north from whatever persuasion they happen to come. It is the job of being almost part of the political setup in the north of ministers all the time, being up working with people, but also, and more particularly, to engage the British government. I go back to what I said a few moments ago. Uh, a section of unionism is unlikely to move while the British government underpins their position. An Irish government has to tackle that. Secondly, I simply give you these demographics to show you how attitudes are changing. Uh, well, one of the big things come out of uh, the election, incidentally, is the potential for a progressive consensus. More and more people in the North support the notion of marriage equality for gay and lesbian uh, couples more and more support the need for a compassionate approach to women in, uh, you know, in, in crisis pregnancies. More and more support the notion of uh, rights for others from other parts of the world who have come to live uh, here. So there's a there's a more tolerant tendency, not exclusively among young people, but especially among young people for for a different type of society. And all of that, I think. Uh, is is the ground that we need to be making uh, alliances or outreach on, and you know, our, you're right in that we haven't converted unionism to the proposition of a united Ireland. But how 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 hard have the establishment parties tried? I mean, even in my short term in Leinster House, uh, I'm told when I raise the issue, look, okay, I would love to see it, but don't be talking about it now. Whereas, in fact, we should, it shouldn't be a threatening thing for unionism. It should be a sensible approach in terms of developing the Good Friday Agreement infrastructure, the cross-border infrastructure, 
and then building on all of the things that we have in common because one of the one of the motivations for unionism pragmatically uh, was to engage in cross-border matters which uh, were to our mutual advantage and that's what we should be building upon. Brexit has leveled to wreck all of that and the unionists in the farming industry and the agri-food industry across the dairy industry and small businesses know that Brexit's going to wreck all of that. So, so, so finally, Jerry, briefly, if you wouldn't mind, Brexit is a crisis, but it's also an opportunity then. Yeah, well, if, only if the government in Dublin sees the opportunity. You know, I welcome the fact that the Taoiseach is now engaged in an all-island uh, consultative process. He dismissed it uh, initially, but then he moved to be, be part of it. I, I recognise the fact that he is arguing for a special dispensation for the North, but it has to be a special dispensation for the North within the European Union. And the Brexit will affect every village, Stroudwalia, city, townland, from Cork to the tip top of County Antrim. It'll affect everyone, particularly it may affect people in the North or in the border region because we're not, we don't have a, a, a very robust economic infrastructure, but it will affect everyone on the island and the Taoiseach has to stop being mesmerised by what the British are doing and assert our rights, that he, he should seize the opportunity defensively to stop the worst effects of Brexit and then in, in a more uh, positive way to try and build the type of Ireland that we all want to see. Jerry Adams, thanks for your time today. Thanks, you. So, Pat, what do you make of what Jerry Adams had to say there about the progress of proceedings? Yeah, he sounded uh, less upbeat, I thought, than uh, the bulletins we've been receiving from uh, Minister for Foreign Affairs, Charlie Flanagan, uh, on on the matter. I mean, he's talking about how his meetings are uh, business-like. I think he said friendly at one point with Arlene Foster. I suspect that may be overstating matters uh, slightly. But the fact of the matter is, you know, we're on a deadline for these uh, for these talks to produce an agreement that allows uh, a new power-sharing administration in Stormont to take shape. And there's no sign of a resolution on that. I One of the things that struck me about what Gerry Adams said was um, the sense of a lot of what he said was that, uh, you know, this is up to the governments. The government, the Irish government has to get more engaged. The British government has to, you know, bring things to the table. And you got the sense from him that Sinn Féin believes that this is a problem uh, that, the, that the governments have to be involved in fixing. Whereas the sense I get from both governments, uh, really, is that while they recognise a responsibility to shepherd this process, the agreement, the the achievement of an agreement is a matter for the northern parties, not for the governments uh, to do. But has it not always been the case for 20 years or more now that all these convoluted processes have involved the the two part, the two main parties in the north, and those have changed, of course, over the years as to which are the two main parties, with strong, hands-on, direct input from London and Dublin as well. Yes, but I think what has happened in the last five or six years, particularly since uh, Enda Kenny became Taoiseach and uh, David Cameron, as was, became British Prime Minister, is that there is uh, there is a common sense 
amongst the two governments that their role has diminished as the uh, the the administration's longevity has increased as the institutions have bedded down the government of Northern Ireland and the the achievement of agreements to enable that government to take place from Stormont is a matter for the parties and the involvement of the governments is diminishing. That's very strongly the case on the British side, I think. And to a lesser degree, but still certainly a significant one, I think it's the case uh, on the Irish side. So the days when Tony Blair and Bertie Ahern will be flying into Stormont, when there will be very heavy American uh, in uh, involvement uh, in, in bringing the parties together, that's all a completely different phase of the process than the one that we are now in. And frankly, I get the sense from the governments that, you know, if the parties can't reach an agreement, then that's their problem. It's not so much the government's problem. So when Gerry Adams says, uh, as as he did there, he he seemed to be saying, yes, we can discuss with the DUP the best approach politically to take in terms of the executive and the RHI inquiry on the one hand, or the issue about the Irish Language Act, both of which you mentioned. But he's also talking about this much broader, bigger, thornier issue of dealing with the past and the British government's responsibility there. Is that likely to get any kind of a feedback from, from, from the London government in particular? I, I think, you know, it, even taking into account the Brexit challenges that the British government is dealing with at the moment and the lack of focus on any uh, on anything else um, that's that's coming out of Westminster, even taking those things into account, I think the British government is increasingly disengaged from the process, uh, from the process in the north. The 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 weight of or the, the the importance that Northern Ireland and I suppose you could say uh, you could say the same for Scotland has for the current British administration can I think be judged with the uh, can be judged by the weight that they have put on it in terms of what sort of Brexit they are uh, what sort of Brexit they're they're seeking had the British government been treating Northern Ireland and, uh, as I say, and and Scotland as vitally important national interests, then they would be going for a different type of Brexit. They would be going, they'd be trying to stay in the the, the single market. At the very least, they would be trying to stay in the customs union. That's not the case. And I think that's a good indicator of the importance with which the current British government uh, treat Northern Ireland. Now, James Brokenshire is over uh, is over there. He's cancelled a trip to uh, to Washington. There's no doubt that the British government want to see an agreement between the two parties, the two main parties, all the parties, but the two main parties principally uh, in Stormont. It's the extent to which they are willing to put themselves out and to sacrifice other interests and uh, uh, to, to achieve so, that. So, so I take it from what you're saying there that, that you don't hold out much hope for what Gerry Adams was suggesting there, that some of the, the processes which were agreed in the, in the St. Andrew's Agreement uh, more, than, more than 10 years ago now might lead to, in the absence of an executive, might lead to what sounded like almost some form of joint sovereignty or certainly an enhancement of the, of the kind of cooperation between the two governments. Yeah, I, I just discern no appetite for any sort of direct rule, joint sovereignty, call it what you will, from uh, on on the part of the two governments. I think if they fail to reach an agreement, then you go to new elections. I doubt if 
Sinn Féin relishes that prospect they did so well because they did so well in these mm. ones they won't want to risk those gains in and if this election was a Sinn Féin backlash I think a fresh elections if they are called in the coming weeks could see a, 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 a DUP backlash against that Sinn Féin uh, Such as the pendulum of, North, of, of Northern Irish uh, politics So I think that Sinn Féin will want to avoid um, uh, will want to avoid fresh elections but uh, but at the moment, it's difficult to see how that would uh, how that would come about. Sinn Féin says it wants to see a resuscitation of the institutions, but is maintaining its objection to Arlene Foster as the next uh, as, as as the next first minister. Presumably, in the knowledge that the DUP will not jettison its leader to keep uh, Sinn Féin happy. Finally, can I ask you for your? Political, your learned political analysis of all these noises about Irish unity at the moment, including from Fianna Fáil with a with a white paper on the way, even the Taoiseach uh, Fine Gael, not not you know traditionally supposed to be particularly interested in this as a subject. Sinn Féin, unsurprisingly, calling for a border poll as as soon as possible. But it seems to be in the mix a lot more. Is how much of this is posturing and how much of this is actual real politics? Well, of course, sometimes posturing is part of real politics. Um, I, I think that it is. Uh, I think that the current prominence of the idea of uh, of United Ireland does as much to political rhetoric as uh, as it does to uh, as it does to political reality. To be honest, I think um, if I, I think the concentration by the government, and you know, we will see in the coming weeks when uh, when. Article 50 is triggered by the British government and we will see negotiating positions and a statement of positions by the um, uh, uh, by the EU 27. There'll be a statement from Donald uh, Tusk's office we're given to understand pretty much in the immediate aftermath of the uh, of the triggering of Article 50 and then there'll be a meeting of the um, uh, uh, 6th of April, most likely a, a meeting of the heads of EU27 governments to endorse the negotiating, to, to charge European Commission uh, with negotiating the, the terms of Brexit. And in those statements and in those negotiating positions, the Irish government would be looking very much for language about Ireland. Part of that will be recognising that if in future there is um, uh, there is a successful uh, border poll or a border poll that is successful in achieving uh, a, 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 united, uh, a united Ireland, that the North would automatically become um, uh, a member of the EU in the way that uh, that happened uh, when Germany was reunited in 1990. But I think that concentration on the North and the constant push by the Irish government to its European partners to... Uh, 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 to prioritise the position of the border and the special status, the special position and special conditions uh, in in Northern Ireland. I think that is part of uh, a, a, a pretty clever negotiating position on behalf of the Irish government to uh, uh, to to achieve a position where much of the negotiation about the status of the border and how the border works in a post-Brexit environment is left by the EU27 to the Irish and the British. That's that rather probably, suits the, probably suits the EU27, if, or, or would it, rather than the, rather than the, the full EU that's certainly, to be involved in those well, well, negotiations? Well, that's, that's, that's certainly the hope in, uh, in the Irish government, that it can then negotiate a softish border with the British 
rather than the EU27 negotiating external EU borders with the British, if you get the distinction that. Um, uh, and, and I think talking about the North, talking about the peace process, talking about reunification is a, a vehicle for the Irish government to achieve that end. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I think it is about making sure the border is as soft as possible as any genuine or realistic anticipation of a successful okay, border I can poll. Up, but what about Fianna Fáil? Yeah, that, that I think is, uh, is, is more interesting. I mean, are you going to see a position whereby Fianna Fáil, for instance, fights elections in the North? Is it that interested in Irish unity? I don't, uh, I don't think so. I mean, Fianna Fáil's attachment to the idea of Irish unity has traditionally, or certainly in the, uh, uh, you know, since the days of the 1920s and 1930s, has been rhetorical rather than realistic. I suspect you're seeing a continuation of that tradition. But you're also seeing, I think, uh, a recognition that it is an idea that appeals to voters at least on an emotional or aspirational level. And, you know, Fianna Fáil will be in competition for votes, albeit that in many cases, or in very many cases, very many constituencies, Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin fish in different pools for votes. There are some places where Fianna Fáil TDs are, will be directly challenged. Especially along the border. Candidates, especially along the border. And I think that Fianna Fáil is unwilling to cede that ground uh, to Sinn Féin for political reasons. But do you find TDs in Fianna Fáil who are actively anticipating Irish unity within the foreseeable future? I don't think so. Pat, thanks for joining us today. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Just to mention that we do have an additional edition of the Politics Podcast on Thursday on the subject of unity and Brexit and Irish sovereignty and all that with author Colm Tobin, who's been offering his thoughts on those subjects to the Irish Times this week. But thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember, you can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much for listening. 